When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and many series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes David Jacks to discuss his book, Peter Asher, A Life in Music. Nate and David discuss Asher's beginnings as part of the British invasion, being Paul McCartney's common-law brother-in-law, his move to management, and his role in the careers of James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, and many others. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by David Jacks, the author of Peter Asher, A Life in Music. David, welcome to the show. Uh, Nate, thank you for having me. And so some people might remember Peter and Gordon, but many, many more people know Peter Asher as the manager and producer for James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, kind of the king of the L.A. soft rock mafia in the early <laughs> 70s. Tell us, tell us, how, how did you choose Peter Asher as a subject? I'd say that again. How did you come to choose Peter Asher as a subject? Oh, well, um, I, I worked in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles for uh, many years. I did uh, production and post-production on numerous things. And I was in between industry jobs. And uh, as happens <laughs> in that industry. And um, I was trying to think of something else that maybe I could do. Um, and I always kind of liked writing. I, I did it mainly just for myself. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe I could write you know, some articles, you know, interview some people and get something published. Maybe that would be another thing I could do. So I already had that in mind. And I happened to be standing in line at a fast food place in Santa Monica and the person in front of me was speaking to uh, someone that he was with and uh, with a British accent and was talking, you know, some kind of industry stuff. And I started thinking, is this Peter Asher? 
And, uh, and yeah. And so as soon as they kind of finished the conversation before they made their order, you know, I said, excuse me, are you Peter Asher? He said, yes, I am. And I said, well, I'd like to interview you. And he said, well, this is my assistant. She'll set it up. And it was, that was, you know, how easy it was. So I did an interview and, uh, you know, I was supposed to talk to him for about an hour, but after an hour he realized, you know, we hadn't gotten very far. So he had his, you know, his calls held and we spoke for another like half an hour. And after it was done, he said, Oh, this was great. You really know your stuff. I thought, yeah, I know my stuff. Great. Uh, and then when I was trying to, you know, transcribe it, I thought, well, you know, I can't believe there's no book about this guy. Um, and so I asked for a second interview because I still had more questions. <laughs> and uh, he said, sure. And then at the end of that interview, I said, well, are you going to write an autobiography? And he said, no. He said, I have people have asked me. I have no interest in doing it. And I said, well, uh, I think this could be a book. And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he <laughs> said, well, who's he said, Who, who's going to want to read it? It's just me. And I said, well, I think people would be interested in your career. And he didn't, you know, talk me out of it. He just kind of shrugged and was like, well, OK. And um, so that started the ball rolling. And I, you know, I would get in touch with someone like James Taylor or Linda Ronstadt. And after I amassed, you know, a handful of interviews, I would call him up and say, can I speak to you again? Because now I have more questions. So I was always trying to, you know, if somebody said something, you know, take it to him and go, well, they said this about that. Is that what you remember? Um, and it just went on and on and on. I mean, year after year, I, of course, I continued to, you know, get jobs in the industry and I would, work on it when I could. Uh, sometimes I'd lose a job. I'd have to find a job. I'd have to move this and that. And so it just, it kept go I would just pull it out and work on it when I could. So that's why it, <laughs> it took a lot longer than I thought. I'd never written a book before. So it's like, well, what did I know? I, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, I'll write a book. And then it was just, you know, year after year, you know, putting all these pieces together and interviewing all these people. So was, how many years were you working on the book? What was that? How many years were you working? Oh, uh, I uh, started, I met Peter 20 years ago. That's how long this has been going on. Uh, I mean, I, by the time I finally got an agent and then got a publisher that was interested in it, that was about 18 years. And, uh, and then I had a year, at that point, then I had a year to finish it. Once I signed the contract, it was like, okay, we want the finished thing at the end of the year. And I still wasn't done. I still had like four or five chapters to write. So I had to just really scramble and, and you know, really work on it as much as I could to try to finish it in time, which I did. Well, I'm glad uh, you and, did. It's, and it's... then the funny, the funny thing about it was when I was done, I said to Peter, I said, okay, I'm, I'm finished with this book. I want you to look at it and tell me if I got anything wrong. And he said, well, if, you know, if accuracy is the goal, we should do this together. So come over to the house on Sunday and we'll go through it. And so we sat there for like six hours and oh, he man. went through the, he went through the entire book. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and he would occasionally stop and go, no, this isn't quite right. You know? 
uh, or he'd say, sometimes he'd give me a word. He thought, well, you know, this word isn't quite right. You should probably change it to this word. <laughs> he was like, he was like correcting my, my English. Uh, but it was, uh, it was quite a, an experience. And when it was over, you know, he said, well, that's good. So I was happy that he, that he liked it, you know. Well, congratulations. But let's let's talk about Peter a little bit. He's got an yes. unusual background, and your your coincidental coincidental meeting with him. There were a lot of coincidences in in Peter Asher's life. Tell us about <laughs> his parents, and and their relationships with some very famous uh, or soon to be famous record producers. And, <laughs> and yes, uh, well, Peter's father was uh, was an eminent uh, doctor in Lon- in London. He, uh, I guess, he's, his his claim to fame at this point was uh, him uh, uh, being the first person to diagnose uh, what he what he named Munchausen syndrome, which is where uh, someone kind of is concocting an illness really to uh, to kind of get attention. And now there's even Munchausen by proxy, which is where like a um, abusive parent, a child, a child's mother dangerous. will will keep. He keep their child kind of ill for a while just to get, you know, to get kind of get attention or to get money or whatever. Uh, so he's the one who who diagnosed that. Uh, and his mother was uh, a music professor at the Royal Academy of Music. Uh, she played in, you know, orchestras. She tutored a lot of uh, students, one of which I think you were alluding to. Uh, Yes, uh, George Martin, the, for, uh, the future Beatles producer, was a student at the Guildhall School of Music, and uh, he was uh, needing uh, some tutoring on oboe. That was his, uh, uh, his instrument of, of choice uh, at the time. And so uh, he uh, got Margaret Asher to be his, uh, his uh, tutor. So he would come over to the Asher house and uh, get uh, a lesson from Margaret and uh, bump into the Asher kids as they were running around. So uh, he uh, he kind of met uh, Peter uh, long before they uh, started brushing shoulders at uh, Abbey Road in the 60s. Well, let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is another uh, fruit of a somewhat coincidental familial relationship Peter had. This is Woman by Peter and Gordon. And that was Woman, recorded by Peter and Gordon, and credited to one Bernard Webb. But Bernard Webb wasn't his real name, was it? No, Bernard Webb was a pseudonym for uh, Paul McCartney. Um, of course, the, uh, there was a handful of uh, songs that uh, Paul uh, gave to Peter and Gordon at the beginning of their career. And, uh, of course, the Beatles were they took songwriting very seriously and uh, would give songs to people kind of some of the ones that were in the uh, also the Brian Epstein uh, stable of artists. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, people would just go, well, it's only a hit because it says Lennon McCartney on it. So he uh, said, well, let's try an experiment. 
And so instead of putting my name on it, uh, we'll make up a, a pseudonym and make up a story. I think the story was there was like some art student uh, in uh, Paris that had uh, sent the song in or something, something along those lines. <laughs> uh, and, but of course, you know, that all fell apart within a few weeks. People kind of pretty much realized that this was another uh, McCartney, uh, McCartney song. Uh, and yeah. a good one, really yes. good one. And it, and it was a hit, but let's backtrack a little bit and talk about Peter's uh, life as a child actor, his sister Jane, and how she ends up becoming, um, how she introdu- gets introduced to Paul McCartney and, and how things proceed from there. Sure. The, uh, his early uh, career in the show business was uh, started out as a child actor. He, he and his uh, two sisters, younger sisters, were discovered. I think they were like out on the street or in a park or something. And somebody came up and said, you know, those kids are pretty, they all have red hair, you know, bright red hair. And they just said, Oh, they're so cute. And, you know, you could get these kids work if you wanted to. Uh, so they got signed up immediately to, uh, to the leading, uh, uh, child agency in, uh, in London. And Peter got work almost immediately. He was, um, in a movie called the planter's wife, uh, where Claudette Colbert, uh, big, you know, Hollywood movie star, uh, played his mother. And uh, he did a series of films, and Jane uh, was also uh, acting a lot. They actually acted together once in a, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, which was a big TV show in the, uh, in the 50s. They played uh, siblings on an episode of that. Um, but, uh, you know, once Peter started school, uh, Westminster, Westminster school, which is connected to a Westminster Abbey there in London, uh, once it was, a it was a, you know, prestigious school and it was a serious place. And so he couldn't really take time out to, uh, to go on auditions and things like that. Uh, Jane though quit school, I think when she was 15 or 16, I mean, as soon as she could, because her career really was, was taking off and she was acting on stage and then movies. And so, yeah, but uh, Peter's career was over uh, uh, once he started Westminster, but of course that's when he uh, ran into uh, Gordon Waller, who was also a student there. They both uh, realized they, liked uh, music and were playing guitar and they uh, said well let's you know they were learning songs from each other peter knew more about kind of folk music and things like that whereas gordon knew more about rock and roll and buddy holly so they kind of combined their interests and they realized that their voices uh, sounded really good together and so they started playing at parties and uh finally got little gigs at like uh, pubs and things like that and eventually um, got a gig at uh, the Pickwick Club, which was a kind of a supper club for showbiz people in London. And uh, also at this time, Jane had uh, met Paul McCartney and uh, they started going out. And Paul was hanging around the Asher house a lot. And uh, Peter's uh, parents kind of took pity on him. And there was a, a spare room at the top of the uh, their uh, apartment uh, house in London. And they said, look, you know, why don't you just take that room? So uh, Paul actually uh, lived in the Asher household for two or three years there, right in the, um, you know, in the midst of Beatlemania. Um, And uh, that's where, uh, you know, Peter would hear 
uh, songs uh, as Paul was working on them. You know, he'd play play stuff for Peter, and that's where he uh, heard uh, A World Without Love, which was kind of a, an abandoned uh, song. Uh, Paul had, I think, started it a couple of years earlier, um, but John Lennon hated it. <laughs> yeah, there's the classic story. The opening line of that song is, please lock me away. And John Lennon would put his hand on Paul's guitar and say, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. I will. I will. Uh, yeah. Harlan concurred, and that was the last that song was performed for the <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Peter, knew, uh, Peter knew that it was never going to be a Beatles song. And, uh, and so once they, they got discovered at the Pickwick Club, a guy from uh, an A&R guy at EMI, had come in and had caught the act, which at that point was called Gordon and Peter, um, and said, you know, why don't you guys come and audition? And uh, so they got a contract, and uh, and uh, Norman Newell, who was the A&R guy, said, uh, well, you know, if you guys know of uh, any good songs, you know, that you want to uh, bring to your first recording session, I think he was thinking of them more in in terms of, you know, the folk boom that was happening in America. I think he wanted Peter and Gordon or Gordon and Peter <laughs> to, uh, to kind of be like, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary or the Kingston trio or something like that. But, uh, he said, well, if you know any good songs and any original songs, you know, bring them. And so, uh, Peter remembered, uh, we're without love and went to Paul and said, well, you know, are you sure that's not going to, and he said, no, we're not going to use it. So can we have it? And he said, sure. But at that time it was just two verses. There was no bridge to it. So I think Peter says it was just like a week before the, the recording, their first recording session. And he said, please, you know, we need that song finished. So uh, the story goes that Paul said, all right, and went into his room and just like within minutes. Uh, came out and said, okay, what do you think of this? And then played them the bridge, which is the, so I wait and in a while, that section. Uh, and it's like, great. So I, they knew immediately that, you know, once they recorded it, that instead of going the folk route, I think they were going to be going the pop route, you know, because they had a number one hit right off the bat, which is pretty unusual. Yeah, yes, they did. And they immediately, uh, uh, hit number one in the U S as well. And so they're kind of in this category of groups along with, uh, I would say, Chad and Jeremy um, and mm -hmm. Hermits Hermits, who actually, you know, their, their first hit was was big in both countries. And they continued to chart in the UK, but they were bigger in the States than they were in the UK. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's true. There were a lot of British invasion bands. I mean, once the Beatles kicked the door open, you know, if you had a British accent and a Beatle haircut and all that, I mean, you know, they were, you were almost guaranteed that somebody was going to pick you up in the States. And uh, if the, the song got plugged well, uh, then you had a hit. So, I mean, even the Dave Clark Five, and like you said, Chad and Jeremy, uh, and there were acts that were just bigger in the States. The zombies. Uh, the, yeah, than they, were, than they were in England. So it was kind of interesting. Because um, I think those of us over here who grew up during that era, we always thought, oh, all those British bands are just as big over there as they are over here. But that wasn't the case. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Also, in retrospect, I think it's important to point out that Peter and Gordon were very early on that fusion or blend of British beat rock and folk, that they were right up there with the searchers 
Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and other English groups that, that were bringing in this heavy folk influence, the animals, of course, you know, do a version of a song they learned from Bob Dylan, House of the Rising mm-hmm. Sun that year, and really, really kick off the folk rock boom. But Peter and Gordon were very much of their time. And there's a lot more we could talk about with Peter and Gordon's career, but I kind of want to move on because Peter Asher is really best known as a producer and manager. Tell, let, let me play a song by his probably his most famous client or one of his two most famous clients. And then we'll, we'll talk about the segue out of Peter and Gordon and into his A&R production career. And this is James Taylor from his second album, Sweet Baby James, the title song. There's a young cowboy who lives on the range. His horse and his cattle are his only companion. Works in the saddle and he sleeps in the canyon, waiting for summer, his pastures to change. And as the moon rises, he sits by his fire, thinking about women and glass. And that was Sweet Baby James from his 1971 Warner Brothers debut. It was a second album, both produced by Peter Asher. And, and he was managed by Peter Asher as well. But let's let's talk a little bit more about Peter and Gordon. Not only was he very active singing and songwriting with, with Peter and Gordon, I guess he didn't do that much songwriting, but, but very active touring and performing. But he was also very much on the hip London scene and, in fact, co-owned the legendary Indica Gallery and Bookstore with John Dunbar and Barry Miles. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the most famous thing that happened at the Indica Gallery? <laughs> well, um, yes, you're right. Uh, Peter was uh, um, in uh, more more hip, I think, than a lot of people, you know, at the time gave him credit for. They, they, I think he was looked on by a lot of people as just this, you know, pop star um, uh, without much substance to him. But I mean, he was incredibly well educated. He's very smart, very literate, very uh, knows a lot about art. Um, uh, but uh, he met, uh, like you said, John Dunbar and Barry Miles were friends. Uh, they wanted to start a, a bookstore uh, and art gallery together. And uh, Peter went in with them. They they started Indica. And, um, of course, they would bring over, you know, John knew a lot about art. And Barry knew a lot about uh, uh, literature. Uh, and uh, one of the books that uh, they brought in to uh, Indica Books, of course, was uh, Grapefruit by Yoko Ono. And uh, John uh, was familiar with her as an artist and uh, wanted to give her um, a exhibition at Indica. I, th- I don't think she'd had a, an exhibition in London before. Of her I believe stuff. you're right. That was her first. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so and I think it was November of 1966. Uh, they were going to have an opening. And as you do with uh, uh, a lot of these openings, uh, you kind of invite your friends and people in like the day before, once everything is set up, before they have the big press opening uh, to kind of look look around and, and see what you're up to these days. Uh, and of course, they were all friends with the Beatles at this point. Um, and John Dunbar invited John Lennon uh, to come in the day before. And that's uh, where I guess he tells a famous story where he uh, walks up this ladder and there's a, a kind of a painting up on the ceiling with a with a magnifying glass hanging down and you pick up the magnifying glass and look at it in a very small letters it says yes 
And uh, so that's that's how John met uh, Yoko. And uh, he really loved her art and really kind of got it. I think they both realized they they were kind of kindred artsy souls. And uh, that started the whole John and Yoko story. Yeah. And, and that, you know, John Dunbar was Marianne Faithful's first husband, and he's the one who introduced her accidentally to Andrew Lou Goldham and the Stones. And Barry Miles, <laughs> yeah. you know, goes on to become Paul McCartney's biographer, Frank Zappa's biographer. So these are very hip, very known people in the scene. And also, I want to mention before we leave Peter and Gordon, they recorded the whole album in Nashville in 1966, right about the same time as Bob Dylan is is going to Nashville. One of the first pop artists of that generation to start what becomes a big flood of artists going to Nashville to partake of the ace session men there and the A team. And they have, you know, multiple hits, Lady Godiva. Uh, fascinating stuff about Peter and Gordon. I also love Gordon Waller because he was one of the few people, along with Phil May, the pretty things who and and Pete Townsend, George Harrison, who always stood by Brian Jones, who who never denied or disavowed his friendship with Brian Jones. They were friends to the end. And and so you can only imagine what Gordon Waller was like on the road. <laughs> it was yeah, funny buddy. Of yeah, there there are some uh, there are some stories of hell raising in the book of uh, Gordon Waller. Where at one point they they almost got kicked off a flight during a Peter and Gordon um, tour because he was harassing the uh, what they would call the stewardesses at the at, in those days. Um, and uh, I think uh, th- there's also a story in the book where they get kicked out of a strip club. Because oh, it's just um, easy to do. You know, that's yeah. yeah, no. So he was uh he could get pretty crazy. Uh but uh, you know, and I mentioned this to Peter uh, at one point. I said, "Well, he must have been really such a handful to deal with." And he and he basically, you know, he put up uh you know, he he kind of defended Gordon and said, "Well, no, he wasn't really, you know, that bad as far as performing, you know, when he was on stage, you know, he he followed through and he did his job, you know, whatever whatever he got up to in his private life didn't affect his um, his uh, performance uh, as an artist well let's talk about the segue into production what was who was the first artist that that peter worked with as a producer how did he break into that field yeah well i mean the first day when they did uh, a war without love back in 1964 peter immediately fell fell in love with the idea of making records and the, and the idea that you could bring in a good song and hire the best musicians and tell them what to do, basically. Uh, and he thought that was, you know, great that you could take a song and kind of sculpt it in the studio the way you wanted it and get it the way you, you hear it in your head. So he already thought uh, that that could be a career for him. Uh, but it wasn't until um, Paul Jones, who was the lead singer of Manfred Mann, uh, you know, with Do Wah Diddy Diddy and those hits, um, uh, went off on his own. And he he was he left Manfred Mann and had started a uh, solo career. And I guess he was a little frustrated with uh, John Burgess, who was his producer as well as Peter and Gordon's producer at the time. Um, and he felt like he needed somebody else in the studio to help him. And uh, he asked Peter. I mean, he thought maybe Peter would be a good guy to have behind the board um, and asked him if he would do it. And um, Peter, you know, at first he told me he was very hesitant at first because it's like, you know, usually if you go to a producer, you say, well, what have you done? 
you know, what's your, what have you produced? And with him, it was just like, well, nothing. <laughs> so he was, uh, but he, but he uh, said yes. And he um, hired a great band to be uh, behind Paul Jones on that first record. He, that had his name on it uh, as producer. Uh, he had um, Paul Samuel Smith, who was the bass player for the Yardbirds. He asked Paul to bring along the guitar player for the Yardbirds, who happened to be Jeff Beck. And then Nicky Hopkins, the great uh, uh, keyboard player who played with the Stones and the Beatles and all sorts of people, he was on keyboards. And then, of course, his friend Paul McCartney, he wanted to uh, participate. Well, they already had Paul as bass player, Paul Samuel Smith, so they didn't have a drummer. So Paul plays the drums. So, I mean, he had this great super group on this uh, first uh, record he produced. And, uh, and then at that point... Because Paul was playing drums and he saw, you know, how good Peter really, you know, directed the session. Uh, the whole idea of Apple started to be forming. And uh, he, he, Paul said, well, you know, maybe you could produce some stuff for Apple. And Peter was like, well, sure. But then let's, later let they said... Let me jump said, in and let's take a quick sponsor break. When we come back, oh, we'll sure, talk about, sure. about Peter's run at Apple and, and his run from Apple. So right after this break. <laughs> All right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So yeah, so Peter Peter Asher breaks into production, producing his friend Paul Jones's uh, second solo sessions, and, and like you said, with a killer band, there's a great B-side called "The Dog Presides" that really features Jeff Beck letting loose with Paul McCartney backing him on the drums, and the A-side was "In the Sun Won't Shine" by the Gibb Brothers of the Bee Gees fame, and there's also a song when I was six years old where he actually samples a little bit of Dizzy Gillespie's "Night at Tunisia" and loops that in. One of the first. Uh, examples of sampling on record i thought that was really amazing yeah i when i was talking with peter uh, i think it was the very first interview i did with him i mentioned it i said well you know you were you 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 know basically you were sampling and he said my god you're right that was like sampling before sampling uh so yeah i mean he's a very <laughs> he's a very smart creative guy 
so um, yeah, yeah, I was Gary U.S. Bond singing over a pre-recorded instrumental track off a record in 1960. That's the earliest uh, use of anything like that in a commercial recording I'm familiar with. So, but let's talk about how he gets into Apple. We can skip the story. Right, yeah. You know, the creation of Apple, the Beatles. You know, Brian Epstein dies. Paul McCartney kind of takes the lead. They form this very idealistic company. They're going to sign everybody. They're going to make you know. Every promise Frank Sinatra made to artists at Reprise Records, they're making and more. And Peter's one of the people that gets in there, pulled in to deliver. What did he deliver? What what projects did he work on at Apple? Well, yeah, like I said, um, uh, Paul says, uh, well, rather than just you know producing stuff for us, we need an A and R guy. So why don't you be head of A and R? So of course the A and R guy is the one who uh, signs acts, brings Artists them into the label. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, uh, so, and sometimes finds songs for them to do. Uh, so it's kind of a combination of a talent scout and, uh, and producer. So, um, so within a week or two of him getting this new job, uh, there's a knock on his door and uh, he opens it up, uh, and it's an old friend of Danny Korchmar. Uh, some of you may know that name. Danny Korchmar, in one of Peter and Gordon's treks across the United States, they needed a backing group. They got a group out of New York called the King Bees, and Danny Korchmar was the, was the guitar player. So he had been friends with Peter for a couple of years, but Danny's childhood friend was James Taylor. So... James Taylor, at one point, 19, early 1968, decides he's just going to kind of make his way across Europe, just kind of go, you know, take his guitar, make his way as best he can, busk in the street, whatever he needs to do. Uh, you know, one of those early, young, idealistic sort of, you know, I'm going to see what fate has in store for me and just take off. Uh, and Danny Korchmar says, look, well, if you're going to go to London first, uh, you should look up Peter Asher. Uh, he might be able to help you. Uh, so he shows up at Peter's door. He's recorded a demo of some of his songs. He says, you know, I'm Cooch's friend. Here's my tape. Uh, Peter, you know, plays the tape. I interviewed uh, Peter's first wife, Betsy, and uh, she was there uh, at the time. And she said, uh, you, know, you know, before the first song was over, she said, Peter and I just looked at each other, at each other with our mouths open. They just couldn't believe how good it was. And uh, so Peter says, hey, you know, <laughs> just so happens, I just started a job as A&R with this new record company. Would you like a contract? And it's like, yes, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so he was like the first artist uh, signed to Apple Records. And Peter produced an album for him. It had um, Carolina in my mind on it, which was the single off the album, which I thought I remember hearing at the time. I thought it was a great record, but um, it really wasn't a big hit. Uh, the album wasn't a big seller. Uh, of course, Apple was starting to kind of fall apart uh, and Alan Klein came in and all that stuff. The Beatles were arguing with each other about money and business and so I don't think it was really promoted as well as it could have been uh, with all the chaos going on. But anyway, uh, they didn't like Klein and they and they picked up and left. They just went to the United States and said, well, let's try our luck there. And before we, we leave Apple, though, I want to mention a couple of other acts like he, he does demos with Yes, who are they're going to sign with Atlantic in, a, in, a, in one of these uh, 
signing feeding frenzies. This is around the time that uh, Atlantic signs Led Zeppelin in another feeding frenzy as well. So uh, mm-hmm. losing out to Amit Erdogan, no shame in that. And they also <laughs> got an audition from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash were in London, sang their whole first album for Peter and George Harrison, uh, who passed on it. Apparently, uh, what's the story there? Why did they pass on it? Well, yeah, my understanding is that uh, Peter, of course, loved it. I mean, you know, it's, just, it's Crosby, Sills, and Nash. I mean, come on. And uh, they sang the whole first album. They auditioned. And uh, Peter was there with George Harrison. And uh, Peter said, you know, I loved it. I think part of the problem, there were a bunch of problems. <laughs> One of them was, of course, they were all signed to different labels themselves. I mean, you know, Crosby with Columbia and... Uh, Stills was uh, with uh, Atlantic, and and so to untangle all that was just such a headache that I think that was a big problem. Uh, also, of course, Apple wasn't giving any advances to anybody, um, so I think also there was you know if someone dangles a bunch of money in front of you, uh, you're probably going to go with that. Um, yeah, and, and that was another one that Ahmet Erdogan swept away because he works out at yeah. trade uh, trades uh, Poco, I believe, to to um, Epic uh, to get Graham Nash. And, oh, that's and right. Crosby that's right. Free. I I I'd forgotten about that. And yeah. also, also I think uh, I heard at some point George Harrison said that he he did them a favor by not signing them to Apple <laughs> because I think he George already knew you know that it was all it was all starting to come to a head and Apple i think you know he was he was friends with uh with crosby and and uh, friends with uh with nash already and i think he just thought that well let me save them some headaches um i think you might be right yeah, go ahead. but well i just wanted to, to to move the story along so peter ends up leaving he takes a job with mgm records which is it there's some interesting stories including his meeting with lou reed his, his going to see the velvet underground uh and not being impressed uh <laughs> in the late 60s he ends up getting fired. yeah there there's there are some mgm stories in the book folks so so yeah. buy the book and, and learn some things yeah it's and mgm in that period was famously corrupt and there was a lot of shady stuff going on and, and mike curb who goes on to you know become this legendary uh record mogul um, and had already been a, a surf rocker himself. He fires Peter Asher in, in that sweep. Um, yes, what they did was uh, somebody uh, said, okay, let's clean house. And they hired uh, Mike Curb to kind of be the new head of music for MGM. And in part of the house cleaning, they basically just fired everybody. It wasn't like they fired Peter, but everyone in the New York offices basically were given a pink slip. And it wasn't until years later that... Uh, uh, when I spoke with uh, Mike Herb, he said that, you know, had I known that Peter Asher was head of A&R, uh, I probably would have tried to keep him because he didn't even know. He was way over here on the West Coast. He didn't really know who was over there on the East Coast. But uh, that was just part of the whole trying to clean up their act was, well, let's, let's just fire everybody and start over. Uh, but Peter said, uh, Peter told me that at one point he, he met Mike Kerb and he said, oh, you know, you fired me years ago. <laughs> and he said, Mike was like, well, you know, that, that didn't have anything to do with me. And Peter was like, no, 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 it was it was fine. You know, I, 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 I had James Taylor and I wanted to kind of get on with that. So uh, so thank you for doing me a favor. And so he gets James Taylor. He t- takes him to L.A. What ensues from there? 
Um, he, uh, they, uh, they loved the ads for Warner Brothers Records. Uh, they had this really good ad campaign going on at the time, and there were all these great artists that were involved in both the Warner Brothers label and its sister label, Reprise. I mean, they had all these great people, uh, Joni Mitchell and Ry Cooter and uh, Randy Newman. It was all this great stuff. So they uh, thought, well, this is the label for us. So they ended up uh, cutting a deal with uh, Joe Smith, who was the head of uh, Warner Brothers' uh, label at the time, uh, for, uh, for an album. And they, they said, you know, we just walked away from Apple. I mean, we didn't get, you know, blessings from anybody or a contract torn up or anything. So when they made the deal, Warner, they, they made sure Warner brothers indemnified them from, you know, if, if Apple comes after them, um, that they wouldn't, you know, cause he said, you know, we had the, Peter told me that, you know, we had this thought that we'd start to make money from this new record and then Apple would come and try and take it all away from us. Uh, but actually it turned out that Apple did ended up letting them go. Thanks to, uh, George Harrison and, uh, Paul McCartney was able to kind of go to, uh, Alan Klein and say, look, you know, let's just, you know, we'd let and it was, not it was... stand in the way of an artist. Let's just let him go. Really, the least George could do after he had swiped John, James Taylor's song uh, "Something" in the way she moves uh, as the basis <laughs> yes. of his own "Something" track. Which exactly, is, exactly. Which is, although, uh, although uh, Peter told me that uh, Peter uh, that James's song in the middle of "Something" in the way she moves, he ends the verses by or the chorus by saying, "And I feel fine," and that uh, he he actually took the line "I feel fine," of course, from the Beatles hit. Uh, that was what was in his head at the time. Uh, so he said, well, you know, it's <laughs> that what goes around comes around, you know, that it does. Uh, that it does. And, yeah. and let me jump in. I want to, I want to do our next cue. And that's a good enough segue when you're talking about things going around. This is Linda Ronstadt's heart, like a wheel written by Anna McGarrickle and produced of course, by Peter Asher. And that was Linda Ronstadt's Heart Like a Wheel. And I've jumped ahead of us uh, again a little bit, but uh, that gives you a clue as to the kind of things that, that it's not just going to be James Taylor that, that Peter Asher produces in, in Los Angeles. But let's talk about the recording of Sweet Baby James, because in the production of that, I don't know if he meant to, but Peter Asher essentially overthrew the session mafia, now known as the Wrecking Crew, that had dominated rock and roll sessions in Los Angeles since, you know, uh, Phil Spector in the early 60s that had played on, you know, so many records. Talk about Hal Blaine and Carole King and Leon Russell and that whole crew of people. Peter puts together a different crew of people. Danny Korchmar is one of them. Randy Meisner, who's going to go on in the Eagles. Russ Kunkel, the drummer. These become the new session. These become the new top session players for the 1970s. How did Peter put that band together? How did they do the first James Taylor sessions? Um, well, when they when Peter got to Los Angeles, um, he really didn't know. Uh, 
anyone uh, or know what the good studios were, who the good musicians were necessarily in the scene. Um, he had worked uh, a little bit with um, Chris Darrow, who had been in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band uh, early on. And he had backed uh, Linda Ronstadt. When Peter first met Linda Ronstadt, uh, Chris Darrow was uh, backing her with his group, the Corvettes. So he knew Chris. And so when he got to town, they, they met up. And, uh, and it was Chris Darrow who said, well, you should try the studio. Uh, Randy Meisner's a good bass player. He was giving him advice. And, uh, and at the time, uh, Chris Darrow was uh, playing fiddle behind uh, John Stewart, who had been in the Kingston Trio. And he said, why don't you come to our, uh, we're, we're, we're running through some songs. Uh, why don't you come down to the, to the rehearsal space and watch us? And uh, on drums was Russ Kunkel. And uh, Peter, he said, you know, he knew almost immediately that this was the drummer he wanted. Because, uh, as you were saying, uh, with the Wrecking Crew and Hal Blaine, I mean, he's such a great drummer with all these great, fabulous drum fills and, you know, driving those Phil Spector records and stuff. And he didn't want that. He wanted someone more akin to kind of Ringo Starr, who was very tasty in, in where he put his fills and more musical with how he plays drums. So... That's where Russ Kunkel came from. And you were talking about, uh, you mentioned Carol King earlier in, in regards to the Wrecking Crew, but she wasn't really part of that. I was talking about Carol Kay. I'm sorry. If I, if I said Carol oh, there King, you go. Carol Kay, the bass player. Carol, Carol King uh, is also in L.A. at the time. And yes, she comes to the story as a pianist on the James. She Trail. comes in, yeah. He, he had, uh, and I may have misunderstood you. You may have said Carol I Kay. I could easily have said the wrong thing. I'm, I'm terrible <laughs> about that. That's all right. But yes, uh, Carol King was uh, friends with Danny Korchmar, and of course Danny was in on the sessions. And Peter had had known that Danny knew her. They had actually played in a band for a while called The City, and uh, he was looking for a piano player. But again, he didn't want that kind of regular wrecking crew kind of virtuoso piano playing he wanted to try to keep things you know really simple and soulful and he had heard carol king's demos i mean she as a songwriter she would make these demos of her songs for her publishing company and they would send it out to prospective artists or producers so he, he had heard her playing on her demos this is before she started her recording uh, career and he thought well that's the feel that i want so he asked Danny to bring Carol King on board at just as a piano player. And of course she and James Taylor got on like, you know, gangbusters. And so, yes, one of the things in the book, uh, I talk about the way that, um, a producer like, uh, Peter is trying to, it's like a director in film kind of, you know, casting the right musicians is really important. And Peter was very good at that. And uh, you're right. He kind of brought in a whole new kind of way of recording to Los Angeles. And instead of just trying to spit out as many songs as you possibly could in a, a three-hour session, to really give the musicians time to, um, to get the feel right, to get the groove right. And uh, even speaking with Lee Sklar, who is you know, the great bass player who's played on a lot of James Taylor records among many others uh talked about how when they did a james taylor session there was nothing written down so 
you know, he would play, he would come in and play a song and then they would start to shape it and go, okay, how are we going to start? How are we going to finish this and that? So they were basically like musical directors for a session. And Peter was kind of keeping it all going in the right direction, you know, give them the time to get what they needed to get and then, you know, cut it basically live. I mean, a lot of those records like uh, Linda Ronstadt's That'll Be the Day was cut live. I mean, she was singing live, background vocals were live. They were going for it because they had taken the time in the studio to figure out what they needed to do, not get in anyone's way and sell the song. And so, uh, so yeah, you're right. It was kind of a new day in Los Angeles, the, in the recording studios uh, with the, um, the kind of the people that, uh, that Peter put together. And and Peter's also James Taylor's manager through this whole period and manages his tours, manages him very successfully. And Linda Ronstadt approaches Peter, I think in 71 or 72, and, and he about managing him. She'd already had a hit, different drum with the Stone Ponies, her original band. But he turned her down because he was managing James Taylor's sister, Kate, as her performing name. Right, but, he had but, just... He, he had just gotten, yeah, he had just gotten started as a manager. I mean, they, they, he knew that James needed a manager when they came to the States and they didn't know who they could trust. And so Peter just said, well, I'll just be your manager. Uh, obviously he had been as a pop star himself. Uh, he knew kind of what not to do, <laughs> what to do, what not to do. So, uh, James said, sure. Okay. You're my manager. And, uh, so that, as he started his management uh, career, um, you know, he was just feeling his way, just like James was. Um, he also really liked, like you said, Kate Taylor, James's sister. Uh, she uh, had started uh, a singing career and Peter had produced her album and took her on as a client, as manager. Uh, so when Linda came to him, uh, he kind of thought, you know, you know, I'm trying to keep James's career going. I'm now starting to get another Taylor you know, going, and he just thought that someone, if he took on Linda, someone was going to get shortchanged. Uh, and he's a really fair guy. And so uh, Linda was a little disappointed, but she understood. Uh, but then Kate, after a year or two, decided to kind of back off and not continue her career, kind of take care of herself, go home. And, and, uh, and so she told Linda, you know, go back to Peter because I don't think I'm going to be doing this very much anymore. So Peter was very happy at that point to, uh, to say yes and uh, started managing her. And then the first full album project they worked on was heart like a wheel, which was a really big uh, career breakthrough. Yeah. Her first platinum album. And let's go ahead and hear our last song. And this is from later in Linda Ronstadt's career from the 1980s. This is Linda Ronstadt or Un Amor for a Love by Gilberto Perra. Linda Ronstadt singing Por Un Amor for a Love, which was the first song off of her album, Canción Estime Padre, which was a, a songs for my father, songs of my father, which was one of many, or one of a string of very creative 
albums that Peter produced on Linda in the 80s. But let's talk about first, you talked about the Heart Like a Wheel album, which established her as a platinum artist. It was interesting. She was signed to Asylum, but still owned owed Capital one more record. Capital hadn't quite known what to do with her. And once they heard Heart Like a Wheel, they immediately grabbed it and, and had a big hit with it. Um, but she goes on to then do multiple platinum albums, all string of platinum albums with Peter on Asylum. But I want to talk a little bit about how they pivoted uh, her career. Like they, they do an album in 1980 where she does a number of Elvis Costello songs that kind of uh, uh, deals with the new wave punk explosion that, that had come, you know, really hit the whole L.A. scene out of nowhere. I, I know Linda Ronstadt was infamous in my circles for having called the Ramones constipated. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but but. Peter did help her eventually deal with that, but then they go on and they do a triple series of albums with Frank Sinatra's great arrangement, arranger Nelson Nelson Riddle, which is you know she becomes one of the first rock era artists to really dive into the Great American Songbook, and then she does the trio album with with Dolly Parton and and Emmylou Harris, actually two albums, and then goes on to do a whole Spanish language album as well as performing at Pirates and Penzance on Broadway. How did Peter manage to? guide her through all those shifts and keep her relevant and hitting all through the 80s and 90s long after the singer songwriter take it easy you know eagles la nexus that she had been a leader of had had become completely passe well uh you know a lot of this wasn't just peter it was linda it was linda was um i mean incredibly again just like peter incredibly smart and uh, very musical. And she had grown up with all these different strains of music uh, back in her childhood. I mean, there's the Spanish language stuff. Uh, she was singing Gilbert and Sullivan with her siblings when she was a kid. Um, they were, you know, listening to country music. Uh, they were listening to, uh, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, the, like you said, the, the Nelson Riddle stuff. That was something that was played around the house. So all these musical strains were in her from the very beginning and she just wanted to explore them i mean the real problem was trying to convince the record label to let her do it i mean do you think somebody who had had that much success uh it's one of those things that i discovered when i was working in the business was you think you're in you know surrounded by artistic people but not not necessarily <laughs> some of these are just business people and they're going oh no you're going to ruin your career if you do this uh, but she, luckily, Peter, she had Peter on her side. And even Peter was kind of like doubtful in some of this stuff and go, well, are you sure? You know, and basically, you know, <clears throat> Peter listens to his to his artists. He listens to them. And <clears throat> someone like Linda, who is who she said, you know, I, I have to do this. I have to do this. And he would go, well, Linda, if you want to do this, then I'm going to help you do it. And so. Uh, he, you know, she said she wanted something to sound like the Frank Sinatra record she remembered as a kid. And it's like, oh, you want to work with Nelson Riddle? Let's call him up. You know, let's see if he wants to do it. And he did. And uh, so, yeah, he was kind of helping Linda uh, follow her, her musical dreams. And uh, Peter, being as good as he is, was able to do it incredibly well and like you said you know she had i think the spanish album uh the first one was the largest selling spanish language album 
in uh, in recorded <laughs> recorded in history. history, yeah, or as something American, like that. Yeah, the, as, uh, their their albums in South America that have sold more in Spanish, but yeah, in North America, yeah. number one. And I, I got to mention Jerry Wexler because he's somebody we've done a full episode on, and he frequently pops up as a villain in other episodes, <laughs> despite his you know, <laughs> amazing accomplishments and true love of music. But he also tried to produce an album uh, with Linda uh, that that failed. That Peter yeah, wasn't involved, yeah. with, and, and those sessions were never released. So, um, yeah, the uh, you know, like like I was saying, you know, he wasn't quite sure about the whole idea of the you know Great American Songbook uh, thing for Linda, if that was right for her, and he didn't really know that music very well. So when she first came to him, he said, you know, I don't think I'm the right person to do this, and so they handed it off to Jerry Wexler. So they did record an album, but it wasn't when she got done with it. She said, you know, this isn't really what I it's not what 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 I'm hearing in my head is not here on the tape. So they didn't release it. And then she tried again, you know, later. And again, they came to. Yeah. And they came to her and they said, no, please don't do this. But uh, Peter said, all right, look, I'll I'll help you do this. Uh, That's when they brought in uh, Nelson Riddle and uh, and they did it. They did it right. Yes, they did. And, and and that's been a hallmark of Peter Asher's entire career. My guest has been David Jacks. The book is Peter Asher, A Life in Music. David, thank you so much for bringing this story because Peter Asher, you know, his work in the 60s is, is quite significant, I think. But his work in the 70s is incredibly significant. One of the dominant genres of that whole decade, two of the biggest stars of that decade. I, it's hard to yeah we didn't know. even we didn't even touch on Cher and Diana Ross and Ten Thousand Maniacs and um, you know Robin Williams I mean he's worked it's amazing the amount the different kinds of music that he's that he's done and he's been great at all of it yeah the stories of him working with Ten Thousand Maniacs were particularly interesting so if, we've definitely not heard the whole book in this conversation there's a lot more there highly recommended book and David thanks so much for coming on Let It Roll. Well, Nate, it was a it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate returns with Brooks Long to discuss the Neville brothers. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www pantheonpodcast.com It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.